After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear, as Jesus said, hearts that are willing. We pray that you'll tune our hearts to sing thy grace. And for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Music, I'm sure you'll agree, music is a beautiful thing. And one of my favourite things in music is the crescendo, which is the slow, gradual build in volume and intensity that brings everything in the music to a, to a powerful, climactic peak. I love it when it reaches that peak and then tapers off into something that is deeply satisfying to the human spirit. I'm sure you'll all agree, you know it. Our Advent and Christmas theme this year is a crescendo of hope. The story of Christmas is a crescendo of hope. Now I wrote the Christmas theme in the weekly news that you received on Friday, and Hugh Jones, a previous music minister of our church from 10 years ago, read it and shot back. Uh, I quote, preach Moffat. I hope there's talk on diminuendo as well. We'll see how we go during Advent. 
The life of Jesus then is not a flat piece of music, if you get my metaphor. It's not a flat piece of music. Rather, it is building in intensity to a crescendo of hope, a movement to a high point, and not just any hope, but the ultimate hope promised of God. That's our theme for 2023, promised of old. So when Jesus said his first recorded words in his adult ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand, that was a high point. Repent and believe the gospel. That was a high point, moving in increasing intensity towards his death and resurrection. Now, I've got a fun fact for you about that later. Fun fact. We'll come to that. I'd just like to drop in some, you know, expectation. The Gospels, then, are not, are not the beginning of Christianity, of, as some say. They are rather the fulfillment of the story of God, the divine symphony. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. That's Robert Robinson. There is progressive increasing intensity from the beginning, from Genesis, and carried through the music that is the story of God. And it is the crescendo of all these hopes articulated divinely when the heavenly host buzzed the shepherds in Luke 2. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with an angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. We'll get to that. The prophets, of course, said this would happen. Peter writes, concerning this salvation, this redemption, the prophets of old who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to ascertain what was going on inside them as prophets trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Even angels long to look into these things. Even angels long to see what we now see. The prophets searched intently the things we now know. Joy to the world. During Advent, which starts next week, we'll be spending four weeks carefully searching through Isaiah 40, a wonderful chapter of the Bible written two and a half millennia ago, a chapter which shows us the tune leading to that crescendo of hope that is fulfilled in the coming of our God, the advent of our God. Now, little personal note, Isaiah 40 was the first text that I was given at St. Philip's at Eastwood to read from that little wooden eagle from the side. So it's pretty special for me. So, Isaiah 40, let's get to it. The first words of Isaiah 40 are slow, deliberate, beautiful, profound, poetic, rhythmic, and memorable. An unnamed person, right, which is, you're, you're leaning this forward, an unnamed person is commanded by God to say something to my people. What is this one to say? He is to say, comfort, comfort my people, saith your God, and speak tenderly 
to Jerusalem and say to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Literally speak, verse 2, speak over the heart towards Jerusalem. Something tender rather than harsh, we'll come to that. And cry out to her in her anguish that her warfare is finished. Remember how I said that music is a beautiful thing? Now, if we can make this work, you know, technology, I envy my 19th century predecessors who just use their voice. But I want you to listen to, try this, listen to this. It's just a minute of Handel's Messiah. Listen. Close your eyes if you need to. simply divine. Thanks, Bell. Beautiful. That's how Handel begins uh, the Messiah. So, what are the contexts of these commands to comfort my people, to cry out to them? And the answer is chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah. That's the context, as we learn in that video. An exile, a judgment for sin, for her sin, in the form of, for Babylonian exile, a flattening of ancient Jerusalem, not because might is right, that's what the Babylonians thought, but because God's hand was there in judgment to them. But God never left his people, his covenant people. He never stops noticing, he never stops loving. And those who were languishing in exile wondered if God was really there, if he cared. And at the heart of verse of Isaiah 40 is a complaint. So cast your eye down in your Bibles to verse 27. Uh, which really is at the heart of the context of Isaiah 40, which is God saying to them, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Right? Have you ever thought that? My cause disregarded by my God. Or in the video, they were asking, what just happened? Well, God gives an answer in this chapter, and it is Job-like but leans forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 40 verse 1 is considered the turning point in the prophet Isaiah. The turning point is so stark, 1 to 39 being so harsh and so bleak in just judgment. 
and chapters 40 through 66 being so gloriously hopeful that scholars believe there are two books here, that chapter 40 verse 1 introduces Deutero-Isaiah or the second Isaiah. Now, I don't want to wade into that debate. Suffice to say that comfort, comfort ye my people, is the beginning of the gospel of the good news. And the comfort comes then with the promise of the end of exile, that her warfare is over, that her sins have been dealt with. And with these extraordinary words of comfort, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, which first of all means it's over. But some people look at that verse and think, is God dishing out twice what they deserved, which would seem unjust. But one scholar pointed out to me that the Hebrew word for double can actually mean to fold over. Right? See this? To fold over, which has two meanings according to this theologian. Number one, that God's wisdom has, is two-sided and has a sense of hidden realities in it that are beyond the human mind. I'll let the scholar speak. So here, the thought is not of an excessive punishment running beyond what the case is required, right, something unjust, but of dealing with sin that includes realities that are beyond our comprehension. On the other hand, when something is folded over, each half corresponds exactly with the other half. And this would yield the thought of the exact correspondence between sin, just sin, and payment, or judgment, and then mercy. As promised for the people of God, their sin is neither being ignored, nor is it ongoing. That somehow, someway, someday, God has dealt with the sin. We'll come back to that in the New Testament. And then in verses 3 through 11, although we'll only get up to 9 today, verses 9 through 11 should be treated on their own. So gorgeous. But I, I need to say in 3 to 9, there are three unnamed voices crying out the good news of comfort. And if you've got a Bible open, you can see it in verse... Three, six, and nine. I know you guys who like neatness are now happy. Three, six, and nine. Verse three, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Who is that voice? You can see it in verse six, a voice says cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? And then uh, Isaiah's given a voice, a set of words to say. And then in verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. So what do these voices say and how do they relate to our lives? This is not printed, but if you're taking notes, there's space in your news sheet. The first voice says, make a highway for our God. The second voice says, the word of the Lord endures. And the third voice says, here is your God. But there are surprises in the third voice, and we'll get to that next week. So the first voice says, in the wilderness, right, verse 3, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, while I can hear the voice of the tenor 
in Handel's Messiah, those who know Jesus personally will know this voice as John the Baptist calling in the wilderness. We'll come back to him. This voice is a lone voice here in all the pain and upheaval, and his one message is this. Do it. Make a highway. Make ready. Make a road straight. The picture here is not a road out, like in the Exodus, out of slavery, but rather of the Lord coming into ancient Jerusalem to aid his people. So Jerusalem is to get ready for her king to come. There's ancient Near Eastern um, mythology, and I think Isaiah is drawing on that ancient Near Eastern mythology and turning it on its head, giving it truth. Uh, there's an ancient Babylonian hymn that goes like this, referring to the myth of the god Nabu, and that's not Star Wars, by the way, that's he, Nabu is the ancient god of wisdom and lit literacy, and uh, there's ancient records saying, make, make Nabu, Nabu's way good, renew his road, make straight his path, hew, out, hew for him a track. This refers to the creation of special processional routes. It's why we have boulevards. I mean, it's why we do boulevards. But they have little processional route along which the images of the gods were carried in festivals. And you can see this in parts of the world today. Little road and they walk along in a festival with the images of their gods. So Isaiah is drawing on this ancient Near Eastern myth and turning on its head because here on this highway, the highway is bigger, first of all, we'll come to that, but here on this highway comes our God for him to show up that highway is huge and cosmic, such that, did you notice it? Every valley raised up. You might have to sit, look at my hands for a moment. Every valley raised up. Because you're trying to build a highway, right? Infrastructure in New South Wales, eat your heart out. Every mountain that would block your path, flattened. The rough ground should become level, because you're making a road and rugged places are plain. Now you hear this, when God comes, all the valleys filled in. I mean, how do you even do that? Every human being that's making a road yields, on the whole, yields to the topography. You have to yield to the topography. Can I have a hand, all you engineers? You get it. Now we sort of do that in the 20th century with our miraculous technology namely in the form of dynamite. Whenever I travel up the F3 to the central coast, whenever I travel up the F3 to the central coast, I think of Isaiah 40 verse 4. Don't you? <laughs> the mountains are brought low. But interestingly, I'm, not, I'm just making this point, the valleys aren't filled in. And this is with all the glory of modern human technology. In any case, it's a metaphor, a picture, and what or who travels on that highway, verse five, the glory of the Lord travels. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, the glory that left Jerusalem and will return to it after exile, 
for all flesh, literally all flesh, all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. They will see the glory of the Lord returning on a highway for our God, God showing up in all his glory. Now this is first fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ in great humility, as the Advent prayer said uh, a few moments ago. And it will be fulfilled when he comes again in his glorious majesty. Because who will see it? And the answer is all flesh, all the world, not just the towns of Judah. The comfort is for the whole world. It's global, not just about ancient Israel. Tim Keller believes that this means that the king has to come from above, not from this world. That's the first voice, make a highway. The second voice is that the word of the Lord endures. Verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And Isaiah said, what shall I cry? Give me the words. And here are the words. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. How so? The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows upon them. Now, this passage at first looks like it's about human frailty. We all feel it. Uh, And we feel it more keenly the older we get. That, you know, I'm a flower that could fall. But the passage really is about the human heart because, because Isaiah says, all flesh are like grass and all their faithfulness, all their chesed, love. Uh, that is, my free love for God is like the flower of the field. That is, it just blows over. This is a message about the fickleness of the human heart. It looks great, but is dying. It looks lovely, but is fleeting and God's breath is on you, the holiness of the Lord touches you, and you conclude, surely people are like grass. But the conclusion isn't something about fickle humanity. It is about the word of God, the promise of God. Verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, right? I'm frail, God is strong, my love fails, God's promise remains unchanging. Where my sin puts me on sand, God's promise puts me on solid rock, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. I'm reminded of that stunning verse in 1 John 4 verse 10. This is love, and in the English there's a colon. This is love. That colon means that love is about to be divinely defined. This is love, colon, That colon, by the way, means that the next words you hear are possibly the most important words you'll ever hear. This is love, colon, not that we loved God, faithfulness like a flower, but rather that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 8 of chapter 40 is then quoted by Peter in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 1, verses 24 and 25, which is, by the way, the script of the east window, which is hidden behind this lovely screen. <laughs> so I thought I'd put it up on the screen. <laughs> There's something depressing about that. <laughs> but I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but go up and have a look. You can even see during the night time. 
And uh, you should know that the east window here is just full of a floral arrangement. And by the way, for those with eyes to see, everywhere in this church is full of flowers. Look at the tiles on the ground. Look at the artwork in the pulpit. Look at the, uh, the fleur de lis in the organ. The flowers up here. Notice no images in the windows. There's never been a cross at the front of this church. This church is full of flowers. And the east window, if you look closely, quotes in the King James 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, and does so as a chiasm, meaning the outside windows move their way to the middle, such that panes 1 and 7 are the same, panes 2 and 6 are the same, panes 3 and 5 are the same, and the middle pane, right, all saying, all people are like grass, flesh is the glories of the flowers of the field, grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and the middle pane says, and this is the gospel that was preached to you. This church has always been an evangelical Anglican church. So that's the second voice. And the third voice I'll deal with in one minute because I don't want to steal thunder from next week. Roger's speaking next week. Third voice is, here is your God. We'll look at verses 9 to 11 next week, but it is a third voice, so I need to mention it. This time, the voice is of one running with the good news, like the messenger with beautiful feet. You who, verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Can you hear the music? Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God, and it is good news. Lift up your voice, lift it up. Here is your God. Leaving it till next week, but I'm reminded of the words in communion, which I think we might be doing next week. And I'll ask you to say these words in yellow, and if you don't say them good enough, I'm going to ask you to repeat it. Uh, verse 9 of Isaiah 40 reminds me of these words where we say, it's from the second century, lift up your hearts. Right? Lift up your hearts. Or put simply in the Latin, translated, up hearts. Amen. More of that next week. What do we make of this? Well, first, it's to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 40. Here is your God. And his name is Jesus. Second, we all need to repent. We need to repent. If there is a God, and there is one, and if he is coming, and he is coming, then you'd better straighten up. Straighten up. Now, not in your own strength. I'll come to that. But all four Gospels begin with John the Baptist. Mark, Luke, and John have him at chapter 1. Luke at his birth. Mark has Isaiah 40 quoted in verse 2. And in Matthew 11, if you wanted to flick over to that, uh, we read, and I love this text, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And he says to them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? What were you expecting? A reed swayed by the wind? A person who could blow over in a heartbeat? A snowflake? Probably not. So verse 8, if not, what did you go out to see? The opposite? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. 
those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one of whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, Malachi 3, who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist says, prepare the way, and Jesus arrives. In Matthew 11, John has a moment of doubt, like you and I have moments of doubt. He's in prison, he's not sure. He sends a note to Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? That whole idea of a coming Messiah makes its way into current culture with the movie The Matrix, right? Are you the one, Neo? It all comes from Christ. Jesus sends back this message, drawing on texts from Isaiah. You go back and report to John, who knows the Bible. You go back and report to him what you hear and see, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. God has arrived. Here is your God. But what does John say? He says, Matthew 3 verse 1, repent. For the kingdom of God has come near. Fun fact, Jesus was not the first to say, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. That was John the Baptist. Was Jesus quoting John? Possibly. But either way, John the Baptist and Jesus are both in line with the symphony that begins in Genesis. Matthew 3 verse 3, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Thirdly, make it real. Make it real. Put legs on it. The crowd hear this from John, John the Baptist, that God's about to arrive. And so they say, what shall we do then? We've got to do something. And John said, <laughs> it's all about the heart, right? Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food to share should do the same. Now, this has got wider implications, and, but, you know, it's a good, pretty good reason to be part of the City Care Lunch next week. I mean, that's sort of what it is. But the tax collectors, even the tax collectors, came to him to be baptised. They want to be a part of it. And they say, what should we do? Give us something specific. And Jesus knows what they do. They skim money off the top. The Romans made it like that. And he just says to them, don't collect any more than you're required to do. That's going to affect their income. And the soldiers came and said, and what should we do? And John replied, you've got power, don't you? So don't extort money with your sword. And don't accuse people falsely because you have the power. Rather, be content with your pay. Now, you're going to have to figure out what it means for you in the power of the Spirit. But the repentance must be real and it must have legs in your life. And lastly, you don't do this in your own steam, but rather you let God go to work on you. One of my favourite prayers I got from John Piper, which is, God, get at me, get into me, and get through to me. What a great prayer to pray every morning. Get at me, in me, through to me. You know, because my heart... John, John says, Matthew 3, verse 11, he says, I baptise you with water for repentance. Good intentions. A pledge of good conscience. You're doing the right thing. And so I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, behold your God, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Let him go to work on your soul, giving you the comfort that comes from knowing your sin has been paid for. Fold it over. Sin and grace, justice and mercy. The music then is building in intensity. Let it build to a crescendo of hope in your heart. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Let me pray. Father, the arrival of our God in the person of Jesus in great humility is a cause for great celebration. May you cause there to be a song in our hearts, building in intensity for the good news of comfort, of sins forgiven, and of the revelation, behold, your God. Father, we want to believe the true God, not any fake ones, this, this cosmic, above it all, glorious God who is good. We'll find that out next week. And so bless us, Father, with the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.